0: welcome to the sermon cast from king road church it's our desire that god uses this message to bring you closer to him if you'd like to pray with someone speak with one of our pastors or if you're looking for more resources please go to kingroad.ca scroll down on the homepage, and fill out the reach out fillable. thanks for joining us enjoy the message with you. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. And for those of you who are at home watching, um, we apologize we're having some technical difficulties with the camera. There's some, apparently some flickering going on. Um, So I apologize for that, but uh, you know, electronics, what are you going to do? We're trying to work on it, but, and hopefully we get it fixed before the end of the service. So turn to your Bibles, Matthew chapter five. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16 today. The name Charles Wesley might be uh, familiar to you. If you've done any studying of church history, or if you've ever looked through a hymn book, you would see his name come up uh, over and over and over. Charles Wesley lived in the 1700s in England and was really the leader of what was really the the great awakening over in the British Isles and uh, in London and England in particular Charles Wesley, it, it, when, in the time that he lived, uh, we often look back at old times and we think, oh, those days were, were amazing for the church and amazing for Christianity. Everybody was a Christian, everything was great, but that wasn't necessarily the case. In Charles Wesley's time, before his ministry, when, when he, in the time when he was born and growing up, Uh, London and England was a pretty nasty place to live, London was really dirty, Uh, there were brothels here, there and everywhere, Um, there was a lot of thievery, a lot of disease, Um, the life expectancy at that point in in England was actually quite low. Um, But then along came Charles Wesley. He grew up in a in a, in a home, a faithful Christian home where his, his father was in ministry. His mom was an amazing woman of the Lord who raised her boys to love Jesus and to want to worship him. And, and after he was converted, he got to work pretty quickly and started going into ministry. Uh, and historians credit Charles Wesley, actually, with turning England around. Uh, they believe that without Charles Wesley's ministry, actually... England would have been on the same path that the French went towards their French Revolution and how nasty and and violent and bloody that was. They believe that England actually avoided that because of God's work through Charles Wesley's ministry. One historian wrote this about him. He said, From 1739 till his death in 1791, Wesley was relentless. He got up each morning at 4 a.m., kids, You think you have to get up early to go to school? I don't think anybody's making you get up at 4. Eh? No? Okay. He got up every morning at 4 a.m. and and had his first sermon done most mornings by 5. He and his itinerant preachers divided each day into three equal parts, eight hours for sleeping and eating, eight for meditation, prayer, and study, and eight for preaching, visiting, and social labors. He organized hundreds of local Christian societies, established and kept an eye on, uh, on a Christian school, opened the first free medical dispensary for the poor, a rheumatism clinic in London, and wrote a treatise on medicine. He prepared and preached at least 45,000 sermons, traveled a quarter of a million miles on horseback, in all weather, night and day, up and down all across England on roads that were often dangerous and sometimes impassable. While he was doing that, he composed his commentary on the Bible verse by verse, wrote hundreds of letters, and a daily journal from 1735 until the year before his death. He also wrote some 330 books that were published during his lifetime. He composed English, French, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew grammars, and edited many other books for other preachers. He, he encouraged people to never be unemployed for a moment. Believe evil of no one and speak evil of no one. He taught that a preacher of the gospel is the servant of all. That Christians should be ashamed of nothing but sin. And that everyone should be punctual. Wesley understood the, that individual conversion was the key to societal change. Charles Wesley, you can't deny, um, was salt and light in his world. And we're going to be looking at a passage where Jesus talks about us being salt and light. Because when you look at Charles Wesley's ministry, Jesus used him to preserve society. So you know how salt acts as a preservative? He used Charles Wesley in that way to slow the decay of what was around him and to actually transform it, to, to... create a base in London for future ministries of guys such as Charles Spurgeon. But today's passage that we're going to look at that talks about salt and light is Matthew five thirteen to 16, which says, Jesus says this, "...to you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet." You are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people put a light or nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven So we looked at an example of salt and light already in Charles Wesley but don't don't for a second dismiss that, that that's for some so-called super-Christian like Charles Wesley. Jesus is saying this to a lot of people who are in front of him at the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and these are just regular working folks like you and I. The call to be salt and light is for every Christian. As salt, Christians are a preservative, and as light, we can push back the darkness. So the big idea for the sermon is that speaking and living out the gospel Makes the world a better place. Speaking and living out the gospel makes the world a better place. And the points, we have two points. Number one, stay salty. And number two, shine bright. So, point number one was stay salty. Just the first part of verse 13 you are the salt of the earth. So if we remember the context of the passage and what Jesus is doing and where he's speaking, he is speaking to this crowd of people that he's taken from the town out into a more remote spot where they won't be distracted from all the hustle and bustle of the trade routes that are going by. But he's also, when you look at what he's already taught them, he just finished teaching them the Beatitudes. He just finished telling them about being persecuted on his namesake. So so he said, listen, you." You have to go out and you have to, uh, blessed are those who uh, humble and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For those who are peacemakers. And then when you live out that way of life, you could expect persecution. And now he says, you are the salt of the earth. So those who live out the gospel through that kind of beatitude way of living and those who are willing to suffer for the cause of Christ are the salt of the earth. And this phrase, salt of the earth, you might have heard that in our, in our society, there's kind of a common phrase. I don't know how old school it is, um, I'm, I'm almost 45, so potentially I'm, I'm really old and, and this is good for me, but you younger people are going, no, this isn't much, but... But something when you 're talking to somebody about your neighbor and or he 's talking about his neighbor or something he goes yeah he 's a really good guy, you know a real salt of the earth type that 's one way that our culture actually acknowledges this passage is that they're good, a good guy is the salt of the earth, but what Jesus is saying is like not you don 't just have to be a good guy, but you actually the good guys the ones who are the salt of the earth are actually the ones who are following what he said, the ones who are actually living out their lives for Jesus, the ones who are willing to follow him and willing to suffer for his namesake. That's who the salt of the earth is. Now, saying someone is salty, because when I said stay salty, people kind of laughed. Saying someone's salty kind of has a negative connotation, right? We think of somebody who maybe is a little bit cranky, kind of a complainer, kind of a little grouchy. You know, Heinz around here, he's old salty to us, Right? <laughs> No, of course not. not, Have anybody ever seen Heinz Grumpy? I haven't. But I'm sure Rosie has. But, you know, this this idea of being salty has that negative connotation. And that's not the kind of salt that Jesus is calling us to be. He's not calling us to be out there whining and complaining and talking about how bad everything else all the time. But let's actually be salty as in... We are going to live out the Beatitudes and we are going to follow Jesus in our culture and we're going to live out what he's called us to, no matter what the cost. So we want to be salty the way Charles Wesley was salty. Even in the ancient world, and definitely in Charles Wesley's time... (laughs) Even over, just over 100 years ago, like, refrigeration was not something that was a common thing in every household, like how, how now you have air conditioning in your car, you have you have uh, probably multiple refrigerators in your homes. That wasn't the thing, that wasn't the way it was back then. So in order to preserve food, they had to store them in salt, especially meat. And meat, salt would act as a, a delaying agent, to so that, 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 meat didn't decay and go through the natural decaying process. Salt would preserve it. And this is what Christians do in our world. When we get involved in our world around us, like we aren't, we aren't to be of the world, but we're to be in the world. And as we are in the world, we are acting as a preserving agent of our culture around us. And sometimes we delay the decay of the world around us. And sometimes, like Charles Wesley did, you can even see it reverse he didn't just delay it, but he actually expanded righteousness and you saw England turn, turn, turn its way around and become actually known as a Christian country. You might remember the story even that I shared a few weeks ago of Don Richardson who was a missionary with his family and they went down into New Guinea and, uh, in the 1950s and to reach out to the the Saui people who were at the time headhunters and cannibals. And if you remember when I told the story a couple weeks ago, their, their culture was basically kill or be killed and deceit brings victory. And so as Don Richardson went in with his family, he went in with the gospel and in word, in speaking the gospel to them. But also indeed, his wife was a nurse and they brought medicine and they brought tools. And so they were a blessing to them physically and spiritually. They were a blessing to them socially and emotionally. And what did Don Richardson do to do that? Yeah, he, he shared the gospel with them, but if you remember the story, uh, at first the, the people actually praised Judas because Judas was the one who did the deceiving. He's the one who betrayed Jesus, and that was something to be honored in their culture. And after a while, Don Richardson noticed that they had this custom among them called the peace child where the one tribe would offer a child in peace to the other tribe who then and then that other tribe would totally honor this child and he saw oh there's such an opportunity to share the gospel so he took this peace from their culture that was well known to them and that was honored by them and he took it and he imposed the gospel on it and said here's the real peace child Jesus Christ and it was totally transformative to their entire culture, to all 18 tribes that were among the Sao'i people. At the time when they entered, there was only 2,600 of them. And that was after thousands of years of these people being shut off from the rest of society and from the rest of the world. Their culture had grown to such a point where they were just murdering and killing each other, and, and disease would come in and destroy them. And, and their, their, cult, their, their population was only 2,600. But within one generation of the Richardsons' ministry there, their population grew to 6,000. You see what being salty, being a salty Christian did. Don Richardson and his family came in as missionaries with the gospel. They spoke the gospel, and they lived out the gospel among these people. And it absolutely transformed the way they lived for their benefit, And the peace child is just one of many examples of Christians taking cultural norms, adding salt, and then preaching the gospel. One, one way, uh, historically, is if you look at some hymns. Some hymns were taken where the writer would actually take uh, old tunes that were well-known in culture, and then he would put Christian lyrics to them. One well-known one is the, the Celtic song, "Green Sleeves." Uh, was transformed into one of the Christian songs we sing at, at Christmas time called What Child Is This? Another example of this, even in the Bible, as we look in Scripture, we see the Apostle Paul do this. He actually takes something from the culture in Athens and uses it to preach the gospel. So he says this in Acts chapter 17 Men of Athens, he's at Mars Hill or the Areopagus, depending on what your Bible translation says. And this is a place where all of these philosopher types and cultural leaders would come and they would debate together. And so he said to the men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So you can imagine being in their time and being in Athens at that time, being one of those philosophers, you would probably just walk past this statue every day and not even think twice about it. But then all of a sudden Paul grabs it, grabs the inscription on it and says, this unknown God, I'm going to tell you who he is. And so he continues, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all. By raising him from the dead. Notice how Paul uses their cultural piece, that statue, and he starts to bring in who God is and who Jesus is. Even in this, he doesn't even actually say Jesus' name, he doesn't actually say the forgiveness of sins, but he gives them enough that they hear it and they go, all of a sudden, that statue that was totally uninteresting before now has really interesting. So he took this cultural norm and he added salt. Even nowadays, pastors do this in sermons. Uh, I've been, once in a while, we'll talk about a movie or a song that's well known in culture. And I bring it in and I, and I make it an analogy for something that is scriptural, something that's in the Bible, just to kind of make the point and drive it home. This is what Paul did with that statue in Athens. This is what Don Richardson did with the Sowie people. That's what it's like to be salty. We, we, we look at the things that are common in culture and we take them and we, we show how it, actu- it either points to somebody's need for God or somebody's desire for God or the fact that we're all worshipers. Something which gives you a little doorway into sharing what the gospel is with your neighbors. And Christians aren't just salty by looking at these cultural norms, we're also salty by boldly proclaiming the gospel where we are. And we can do this either, either, either way, by this looking at the cultural pieces or by boldly proclaiming the gospel. We can all do this in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. You might have somebody you work with that drives you crazy. I've, I've been in the workforce many years before I was a pastor. And there were a lot of guys that just drove me crazy. And so how do you love those guys? How do you care for those guys? Even they might have foul language. They might tell bad jokes. All of those things. How are you going to love that person to the point of actually bringing the gospel to them? Well, you can get to know them. You can find out kind of things that they're interested in. You can remember when their birthday is when topics come up that have uh, major ramifications on, on life or culture or hot topics or whatever, you can bring the, cult, the, the scriptural perspective in. When he, when he says something that, that, uh, that, that expresses how much struggle he's having, maybe he's talking about how much he's fighting with his wife at home, maybe he talks about how his kids are wayward, who knows what it is, but you can say, well, can I pray for you? By being salty Christians, we aren't necessarily always boldly proclaiming, but we are at times. And we aren't necessarily always looking for those little inroads, but we are at times. And speaking boldly, um, sometimes people don't do it because we're scared of the reaction. We're scared of being rejected. We're scared of being ridiculed or maligned or all those things that, that, Jesus, that we, Jesus said in the previous two verses. But that doesn't always happen. Sometimes, when we speak boldly, we can get surprising results. Uh, I was on a webinar this last week along with Ike Bergen, um, and we were—it was a webinar on on how churches can be more friendly and more welcoming um, to the LGBTQ community, and doing that without compromising, without compromising Scripture, without compromising truth. How can we do that? And you had a couple of different pastors sharing examples and experiences from their lives, guys who've written books on this and all of this good stuff. Um, one pastor shared actually how in his church, one evening, he was doing a talk on uh, the, the Bible and sexual ethics. So what, is this, what does the Bible say about sexuality? What does the Bible say about all these hot topic issues in the culture? And he did it. He did it in a gracious way, in a compassionate way. He talked about all, those, about all of the topics, but he didn't hold back on the truth. He didn't hold back on proclaiming what was sinful. But then also making sure that everybody understood that one sin wasn't worse than the other. And at the end of the evening, uh, a lady walked up to him, about 60 years old, and she walked up to him and said, uh, Pastor, I just want you to know I'm new to your church. This is my first time here. I, most of my life, have been a lesbian, but guess what? I came to know Christ recently, and it's been hard for me to find a church that is loving and gracious and stands firm on the truth. And so she thanked him that night for standing firm on what the Bible actually says about these things, and for not compromising. You see, when we compromise on these things... It actually leads us to this place of unsaltiness. To a place where our effect on culture, our effect on our neighbors as a Christian witness is no longer effective. Giving in to the cultural threat to conform or be mocked is a pressure that is out there and that is on all of us. I know um, no matter what, what kind of media you watch, um, no matter if you're watching Netflix or any, any show, I mean, all of those proclaim that we have to accept this whole thing un- unashamedly and, and completely agree with it. Otherwise, we're bigots and we don't deserve anything. But that's not the scriptural way. Look at the rest of verse 13. It says, But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. We can look at other churches and denominations that have actually gone this way, where they have given in, where they have given up the, the scriptural truths, where they, have, they avoid talking about things. They, even, they avoid talking about sin, where they avoid talking about scriptural truths about sexuality, or scriptural truths about um, any of these hot-button issues that you can think of. And what's happened to these churches and these denominations? They've been in decline, decline, decline. The Spirit isn't working in them anymore. They've lost their saltiness. So my challenge to us for this first point is that we need to stay salty. We need to hold firm to the gospel. We need to go out and we need to be peacemakers. We need to Be worshipping in spirit and in truth. We need to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And doing this all, following Christ with passion, with joy, with grace, with compassion, with love. Love and truth are not... Uh, opposing things. They're things that we can grasp onto. We can grasp onto love. We can grasp onto truth. And we can love our neighbors with the truth of the gospel. That's how we can be salty. So point number two, shine bright. Starting verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. When I hear that, uh, when I was studying that and reading that this week, I was just finding this, an, uh, an amazing statement that Jesus says to us, to his followers, you are the light of the world. Because Jesus actually refers to himself as the light of the world. And that I can go along with. I can look and go, yeah, Jesus, I'm with you. You're the light of the world. Everybody needs you. Everybody needs to hear about you. They don't, they don't need me. They don't need to hear about me. When we look at Jesus' words, John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But how can Jesus and us be the light? And you guys probably know the answer. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So how can Jesus and us be the light? Because Jesus has shone in our hearts. He has transformed us. He has changed us by the Holy Spirit. He has made us to be more and more like him. When you were saved by Jesus... This started. You started shining for him at that moment. And as we're sanctified, as he grows in us, as he continually transforms us, as we repent and believe, as we walk with him, we shine more and more like Jesus. So when we shine to the world, why are we the light of the world? It's not us. It's Jesus in us who's shining to the world. And he says of us, the church, that we are to be like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Uh, so in Jesus' day, to the people that he's speaking with in Galilee, they would have had one city in mind when they heard that. And that was Jerusalem. And if you know what Jerusalem was constructed like, it's, it's on a hill and there was walls around it that, uh, and the temple mount in the middle, which stood higher than everything else. At night when the, the torches and the lamps are glowing, it would have shone off of these walls and made it glow in the night sky because these walls were all white. So from miles around you could look towards Jerusalem and you could see the bright light of Jerusalem shining on the hill and you could, you could see it and it was, it was this light that couldn't be hidden. And that's what he's calling us as Christians, as the church, to be like. To be like that bright light shining on the hill that people look to, and when they need hope, they go to it. When they need help, they go to it. When they need to know the truth, they go to it. This is what Christians need to be like in, the dark, in this dark world. Lights in the night that those who are lost and struggling can look to and find hope in. You even think of other organizations that Christians have started throughout the years. You think of the Red Cross, which was started by Christians. You think of World Vision, which was started by Christians. You think of Compassion Compassion International, which was started by Christians. International Justice Mission, started by Christians. You think of even in in the 80s, at the beginning and the, the height of the whole AIDS epidemic, And people that were sick with AIDS going to hospitals and hospitals actually turning them away because they didn't want them in there. They didn't want what they had. Where did these people go? Who didn't turn them away? The Christian hospitals. The Christian charities. Even though they didn't know what kind of illness this was or what it could be and if it was catchable, they helped them. And they served them. And they loved them. showed them the gospel in word and deed. There's an old hymn that actually reflects this idea well, this idea of us shining as lights. It's called Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. And here are the lyrics. Brightly beams our Father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore. But to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. So if you think about a a sailor in a boat on the water and there's a storm and he sees the lighthouse... And he's trying to get to it. But in order to get to shore safely, as you get closer to shore, there's more rocks and things. So they have other lights to kind of show what the path is that he needs to take. That's what this hymn is telling us. God, Jesus is the lighthouse. We're those lower lights that lead people to Jesus. The next verse says, light your feeble lamp, my brother. Some poor sailor tempest-tossed, trying now to make the harbor in the darkness may be lost. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor, fainting, struggling sailor, you may rescue, you may save. So Jesus is that lighthouse. We are those lower lights. But only if we actually are letting our lights shine are we actually helping those who are lost and those who are struggling. And we shouldn't hide it. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When I worked at TELUS, um, I was the only, only Christian on the, the last crew that I worked on up in Squamish. I was the only Christian there, and I endured a lot of mockery, a lot of, hey, look at church boy, or, oh, church boy won't like that, and comments like this. And it was a really rough crowd, this group. Um, one day I showed up at work, it was a Monday morning, and uh, I said good morning to the guys, and they kind of looked at me funny. And I was like, okay, what'd I do now, right? Um, and one guy said to me, you don't know what happened, do you? And I said, no, I don't know. And uh, they said... Mike died. Mike was one of our coworkers. He was close to retirement and um, looking forward to retirement, only had a few months left on the job and he actually died of a heart attack the day before. So the company brought in grief counselors. Um, Guys had worked with him for 20, 25, I think some guys even 30 years. And so he was well known, really fun, kind guy, really well liked. And um, so they brought in a grief counselor the next day who sat with us and kind of walked us through some stuff. And at the end of the meeting, the counselor left, and our manager said, okay, guys, anything else you want to say before we get back out to the, to the work? Like, if you guys need any help, call, whatever, all that kind of stuff. But then she said, anything else? And then the most senior guy on the crew stood up and said, I think Paul needs to pray. <laughs> of of shock of all shocks, like, that is never something I thought I would hear. That is never something I thought I would hear somebody say at this, at this work site. Uh, And, and my manager looked and said, are you okay with that? And I said, sure. And then she said, "Uh, anybody else want to, And if anybody's not comfortable with that, you can leave and all that kind of stuff. But everybody stayed. I don't know if that was because the most senior guy said, and they were like, you know we're not gonna we're not gonna offend him. he's kind of old salty, you know <laughs> so I prayed and I prayed for I prayed for us as a crew. I prayed for Mike's family, and uh, as those days wore on and the next weeks wore on, uh, I started to hear more from guys. Guys would come to me and go, One guy." literally broke down crying on my shoulder one day because his mom was sick in the hospital and he was so worried that she was going to pass. And then when I told them that I was going to be leaving to go to seminary and go to become a pastor, every one of them said, good job, that's the right job for you. Just this amazing experience of me just being a faithful Christian within that, and I wasn't always faithful either. But me, just being a Christian within that crew, God was working in those guys, and I had no idea. He was actually using me as salt and light there, and I didn't even know it until that day when the tragedy brought that opportunity. So I only say that because for, for those of you who think that, well, oh, there's no point in me saying anything in the place I work or with my neighbors or with my lost family members, like they've all heard it before or whatever. No, don't. Don't don't give in to that thinking. Think. You never know what God's going to do. You never know how he's working in the people that you're working with or that your neighbors with or whoever you're acquainted with. Just continue to be a faithful Christian. As we said last week, stay on the path. Yes. And stay salty. Keep your light shining bright. Don't put it under a basket. Don't. Hide it under a bushel? No. You've got to let it shine. Because when we look at what we have in the gospel, we have the best news in the world. We have the absolute best news in the world that the God of all creation, the guy, the God who made us, the God who simply spoke and the world and the sun and all the planets... And all the trees and the land and the fish and the animals and you and I came into existence just by speaking. And we've sinned against him, yes, but guess what? He loves us and he's pursuing us. And he sent his son to die for us and to rise again to new life, promising that we can have that new life as well. That is the best news that anybody can share with you Anywhere, and that's the best news that you can share with anybody around you. So, listen as we close. um, Being salty and bright means bringing the gospel with you wherever you go, in your word and your deed. Praying to God for the for the right moments, for those opportunities to share, and don't shy away from it. God's with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and mercies and how you are with us throughout all of our lives. uh, No matter if we're going through good days or bad days, no matter if we're hanging out with other Christians or non-Christians, Lord, you are with us. And by your spirit, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage, give us the boldness, give us the love for our neighbor to actually share you with them. Lord, help us to worship you in such a way that, that we just can't help but talk about you. Lord, we, we, we talk about what we love most. And uh, so, Lord, grow our love for you. Grow our love for our neighbor. And, Lord, I look forward to what you're going to do through us. In your name, Jesus. Amen.